The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I liken the incident we're in to be like uh, in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy gets sucked up in the hurricane with her house and it's spinning around and you don't know where it will come down. And I think that's where our social, political, economic system is at the moment. I mean, I think there's a lot of uncertainty and it's probably not in the pro-growth direction. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And what you just heard was a very distinguished US economist, Ken Rogoff, telling you we're not in Kansas anymore. At the start of this pandemic, economists thought they pretty much knew what we were in for, a short, sharp shock. COVID-19 might kill the economy, dead, in the short term, but it wouldn't take long to bounce back. They don't say that anymore. But now Rogoff and fellow economist Carmen Reinhart think it could be years before we make up the ground we've lost. Reinhardt has just this week been named the new chief economist of the World Bank. People tend to pay attention to what she and Rogoff think since they wrote the definitive history of 800 years of financial crises. What these two are saying today is that anyone betting on a V-shaped recovery from this crisis should think again. Bloomberg's executive editor for economics, Simon Kennedy, had a long chat with them for the latest issue of Bloomberg Markets magazine. We're playing you some of that interview later. But first, I have news of new jobs. Yes, you heard that right. COVID-19 is creating some new jobs amid the ocean of layoffs. Except they're not jobs that your school career advisor would ever have told you about. Do you fancy being a thermal scanner? Or a contact tracer, perhaps? Or a decontamination technician? Bloomberg Business reporter Jeff Green and Federal Reserve reporter Steve Matthews decided to find out who was doing these jobs and how they felt about them. Jeff is in Michigan and he's with me now. Jeff, tell me about these new jobs. How many are we talking about? Well, if you talk about the types of jobs, you know, you're maybe talking about a dozen kinds of classifications that fit into sort of this broad umbrella of sort of a COVID, you know, related job. Um, in terms of the number of people, it's not going to be 36 million. We're not going to offset unemployment with this. But it, one job called the tracer where you try to find people who've been exposed to COVID, they're talking about a quarter of a million of those people needed because you basically need to have somebody in every jurisdiction to try and stop the virus as it gets started. Some of the other jobs, I mean, the thermal scanner, which is a fancy name for somebody who takes temperatures, those are going to be at pretty much every company is going to have somebody like that trying to make sure that people with fevers don't come into the work site. So you were talking thousands, but I don't think millions, though. And I was struck, actually, in your piece, there are some jobs, rather old fashioned jobs that might be coming back into fashion because of the social distancing rules. JP Morgan had talked about uh, bringing back elevator attendants. I guess we'll have a few things like that where we actually have people checking that we're doing the right thing in contexts where previously everything has been automated. Yeah, doorman, elevator operator. Maybe even people from the mailroom will have a whole different sort of importance and role that, you know, has been kind of fading until this. 
So let, let's hear more. I mean, you talk to quite a wide range of people across the country, uh, you and your colleague uh, Steve Matthews. But this was Mark Schofield, who's a retired Air Force special agent, now working as a thermal scanner. So I guess that's a temperature taker at a retail distribution center in North Salt Lake in Utah. From a personal perspective for me, I haven't been sick for 20 years. I think I'm old enough. <laughs> the herd immunity's had most of its effect through me. Uh, so I don't, I personally don't feel any danger. The people I work with, we don't feel any danger. We feel we're secure in our little, in our, in our booth or, or, or shed. If we go right. out to say something, some of the, some of the truckers are really fun. Get to know them a little bit and they want to talk to you and tell you a joke. And so we'll stand outside this shed with our six feet apart and we'll chat for a few minutes and, and they'll go do their thing. I think everybody on my shift is very comfortable with what we do. Interesting thing about him is he actually was working for Kelly Services, which is who's getting a lot of these people placed. They don't necessarily say for who, but a lot of Fortune 500, 100 kind of companies are are, are needing these these positions. But he was uh, a substitute teacher for them prior to uh, taking on this role. So, I mean, he had just been doing that on the side. He had a background in it, so he would take substitute teaching gigs from from time to time. But there wasn't much call for that in this in this situation. So when it came up, he kind of raised his hand and said, yeah, I'll do this. And uh, he, he's a big guy, military guy, clearly feels pretty impervious. So I think it's he's an interesting character. Um, you made the point rightly, Jeff, that this is still a, a drop in the bucket, these new jobs, compared to the ones that are being lost, the 36 million and, and, and counting lost jobs. But of course, I think people will be glad to hear that any jobs are being created in this environment. Um, do, you, do you get the impression... Uh, from the other people you talk to that they're happy to do it or are they worried about the potential risks in some of these jobs? I mean, everybody who's doing it seems to have a different way they've sort of rationalized or or just dealt with it as not being something they're worried about either because of the protective measures or where they see themselves and sort of their health. I mean, one of the things that's pretty much true across the board is this is of more money than they might be making in their day-to-day job. I mean, these are usually $20 or more an hour. And a lot of the people taking these jobs were probably in sort of the $15 an hour or less category. So you're, you're looking at people who are able to um, get a raise basically to do something that seems somewhat risky. Uh, but risky in a sense that you're wearing full protective equipment and you're usually behind plexiglass and maybe more protected than you are when you go back to work if you didn't have this job. But I guess we should add that you've also uh, got a new job uh, that you didn't have a few months ago. We're not, we're not supposed to moonlight here at Bloomberg, but I think in this case the bosses have approved. You've been you've been working away yourself on some on the anti-COVID effort. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I have a three D printer or two or three. It's a hobby, you know, and I've been working from home, so they're literally right behind me through a door. And I've been working with some local people, some nonprofits, just to kind of make personal protection equipment. Um, you know, thankfully, there's a lot less demand for the really heavy-duty stuff. We were doing a lot of face shields at first. Now it's mostly, um, they call them ear savers. It's so that when people wear masks all day, it doesn't rub their ears raw. And, and there's a high demand for that from people who are, you know, basically wearing masks everywhere. How many originally of the masks do you think you made in the early stages? Uh, about 350 of the straps for the masks. Um, they were like printed with a special plastic that's easier to disinfect and then somebody else put on a face shield. 
And I'm just over a thousand of the ear protectors right now. We're still doing those, probably winding that down soon, but I'm trying to get another thousand done so they can, because people are sending them all over the country where, you know, where they're having trouble finding them. Well, I'm glad that you're not doing the really urgent stuff anymore because we've made you turn off your machines in order to do this. But I should let you get back to that and your and your work for Bluebird. Um, Jeff Green, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, when Carmen Reinhart and Ken Rogoff wrote their history of financial crises in late 2009, their title was ironic. This time is different. Eight centuries of financial folly reminded readers that it rarely was different and the catastrophic 2008-09 credit crisis wasn't unique. Rogoff is a former IMF chief economist who's now a professor at Harvard. And right now, Reinhardt is also a professor at Harvard, but as we heard earlier, she's about to be chief economist of the World Bank, right in the middle of what feels like a one-of-a-kind crisis. So my colleague Simon Kennedy started his interview by asking the obvious question. Is this time really different? It's certainly different from prior pandemics in terms of the the economy, the policy response, the shutdown. Uh, The other thing that I'd like to highlight that is very different is the suddenness, how sudden this has been. If you look at U.S. unemployment claims, in six weeks, we've had what it took 60 weeks in terms of the the run-up. If you look at capital flows to emerging markets, the same story, you know, the the reversal in capital flows in the, the four weeks ending in March, the, the decline matched what during the global financial crisis took a year. So the suddenness, the abruptness of it is also a factor that is a byproduct of the the widespread shutdowns, which we had not seen before. Certainly the global nature of it, and that highlights the speed point uh, bursting out across the whole world, the first global recession, the crisis, really since the Great Depression, because uh, the, the 2008 was the rich countries and not the emerging markets had a good crisis in 2008. And they're not going to this time, regardless of how the virus hits them. And the policy response, think about China. Can you imagine if this had hit 50 years ago? Can you imagine China having the state capacity to shut down Hubei province to feed nearly 60 million people, give them food and water and concentrate medical attention. So uh, there's a policy option that we have. And I think most countries have felt it's the choice that had to be taken to try to try to uh, protect ourselves. How do you grade the policy responses? What do you what do you make of them? 
Um, no, I, th I think the, the policy response uh, in, in, has been massive and called for. That absolutely necessary. You can quibble between the European style, uh, sort of try to preserve firms and workers in their current jobs, the U.S. version, which is to try to uh, address it as a natural catastrophe and try to subsidize people but allow higher unemployment. I think they're actually not that different. If this thing persists, then a lot of those European firms will end up having to let their workers go when the crisis passes. If it doesn't, a lot of the U.S. firms will end up rehiring their workers. But you know, certainly the aggressive uh, crisis response reflects lessons learned in 2008. And, and Carmen, does that aggressive policy, does that explain the markets, yeah, the stock markets particularly, of, you wouldn't necessarily, if I'd shown you the chart at the start of the year, you would have wondered what the collapse was, but you wouldn't necessarily have, <laughs> you wouldn't have necessarily, oh, we've been hit by a global pandemic if you looked at, look at Wall Street. What's behind, what's that break between the markets so, and the so economy? Um, I would say partially, partially, how much of the resilience, if you will, if not ebullience in the uh, market is, is policy driven. I think a lot of it is uh, that, you know, uh, let's take monetary policy. Um, before the uh, pandemic, uh, the U.S. unemployment was at its lowest level since the 1960s. By most metrics, the U.S. was at or near full employment, which very plausible that, you know, you, your path was one towards rising rates. Um, clearly, that has been completely replaced by a view that rates are zero now, they, that they've come down uh, and that they're going to stay low for a very long, long, indeterminate period of time. Uh, with a lot of liquidity support from from the Federal Reserve, so that's a big game changer for you know discount discounting futures, you know stream of uh, dividends and 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 so on um, for the markets. Uh, let me just point out another issue in terms of the policy response. The policy response again, uh, the Fed has established a lot of facilities that are now providing support not only to corporates, but to corporates on a much lower grade in terms of their ratings, you know, the, the fallen angels, the higher risk, this, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of riskier corporates than certainly was even envisioned at the outset of the pandemic. Um, and I think what this does is the, the market is really counting on a lot of rescues. Uh, of course, the Fed lower forever is part of uh, part of it. But I, I also feel the markets have a very sanguine view of the virus and what's going to happen and how quickly we can return to normal or maybe how quickly we will choose to return to whatever normal is, how quickly the lockdowns will, uh, will end. Um, and it seems very uncertain to me. The, the virologists and epidemiologists I respect, you know, always start out their comments by saying, you know, we're in the second inning. We're at the, we might, if we're lucky, be at the end of the beginning of the epidemic. 
that sort of thing. And, I, and, that, and that rings true. I, I, I don't know how we're coming back to 2019 levels in any near term. The ECB gave, a, I think, a three-year projection. Yeah. That'd be great. That seems quite optimistic to me. And I think the true fall in GDP, uh, economic historians will debate for years, it's probably much larger than the measured fall. It's not just the people not working, but what's the efficiency of the people that are working. And the monetary response is done hand in hand with the treasury, this this level of uh, guaranteeing private debt and municipal debt. The treasury owns the Federal Reserve and is completely, uh, you know, working together on this. But it's banking on this V-shaped recovery, something pretty good happening if you're you can't keep expanding all the credits that you're guaranteeing in the economy indefinitely if a lot of the firms aren't, aren't, aren't coming back. So it remains to be seen what they will do going forward. I think we're going to see a lot of work for bankruptcy lawyers and you know, going across a lot of industries. We see one retailer after another entering Chapter 11 already, and that's probably just the beginning. The numbers are going to look spectacularly great yeah. in some months simply because you're coming out from a base that was pretty devastated. That doesn't imply that per capita incomes are going to go back in V-shape to uh, what they were before. You know, it's very critical characteristic of all of this shock has been that it has disrupted supply chains globally, big time. Um, trade, you know, if you look at the WTO projections, they tell you, well, it can decline anywhere between 13 and 32%. So I don't think you just break and re recreate supply chains, you know, at the drop of a hat. I, I think that there is a lot of geographical changes that are that are being necessitated because if the economic downturn has been synchronous, the disease itself hasn't been synchronous. It started in China, uh, hit Korea, hit parts of Asia, uh, moved to Europe, moved to the U.S. So the idea that the disease is going to be dealt with globally and in such a synchronous and rapid way that it allowed for a V-shape. I, I find that dubious. The second part that I find the, the V-shape story dubious is what Ken was already alluding to, the Chapter 11s. You know, we are all living in economies that have a huge, important service component. How do we know which retailers are going to come back, which restaurants are going to come back, uh, cinemas? And, and so when this crisis began to morph from a, a, a pandemic, from a medical problem into a financial crisis, then I think the roots for it having more longer-lived effects were set. And I think those two factors are going to make for more protracted uh, recovery. Yeah, if I, I go back to the ECB's forecast for three years, 
uh, to go back to the same the same income as the beginning, which is what Carmen and I use as the definition of recovery in our book. That, by the way, is really not the Wall Street definition of recovery, where recovery is going back to where the trend was, uh, which is typical in a recession. We use a much uh, more modest version of recovery, and still with post-war financial crises before 2008-9, the you know, a- average was four years, and for the Great Depression, 10 years. And there are many ways this feels more like the Great Depression when you look at the deglobalization, which seems so likely to follow this, whether, say, in the United States, the Republicans are in power or the Democrats, uh, that seems like one thing they have a consensus about. Getting back to something we wrote, uh, gosh, in uh, late, late March, uh, I think we were very early in on this point that you probably need a debt moratorium that's fairly widespread for emerging markets and developing economies. And an analogy, the, the IMF uh, or Chapter 11 bankruptcy is very good at dealing with a couple countries or a couple firms at a time, but just the way the hospitals can't handle all the COVID-19 patients showing up in the same week, neither can our bankruptcy system, neither can the international financial uh, institutions. So there are going to be phenomenal frictions uh, coming out of this wave of bankruptcies, defaults. Again, if we can get a super V recovery, it'll all be forgotten. The policymakers will look like geniuses. Uh, not, I'm not saying they've done anything but a good job. That I think they have done a good job, but you know they'll be, you know, have saved the day. But it, it's uh, it's probably that's probably not going to happen. It's probably going to be at best a U-shaped recovery. And I don't know how long it's going to take us to get back to the 2019 per capita GDP. I, I would say looking at it now, certainly world, you know, for the world, five years would seem like a good outcome out of this. Um, what about the debts in the uh, in the major economy? You, you mentioned Italy, but also elsewhere. At the moment, there's definitely that mentality that this is a price worth paying. How, how worried are you about the debts in the longer term? Yeah, it's not a free lunch. We have, but we have. It, there, there's no choice. The whole point of having a strong balance sheet of being able to borrow freely is to be able to do it with abandon in situations like this. This is like a war, natural, a, a staggering natural catastrophe, whatever you want to call it. There's no debate that they should be doing all they can to try to maintain political and social cohesion to maintain economies. But what lies at the other end? I go back to my Wizard of Oz analogy uh, with uh, Dorothy up there, the Financial markets think there's no chance interest rates will go up. There's no chance inflation will go up. If they're right in that last 20, 25 years, and by the way, if another shoe doesn't drop, if we you know, don't have another global problem in the meantime, I mean, it'll be fine. But we could have costs from this. We're talking about economies shrinking by 25 30%. And the, it, it, per year, and those are just staggering compared to the uh, the debt burden costs, whatever they are. 
Uh, so, you know, certainly we, we would strongly endorse doing what they're doing. But the summer selling it as a free lunch, uh, that's stupefyingly naive. <laughs> Early on, you were uh, talking about inflation. I think there's a project syndicate um, uh, column. Are those still your views that, uh, that there could be an inflation burst at the end of this? Well, I don't think where we we don't know where we'll come out. So the probabilities for the foreseeable future will have deflation because, you know, th that's where we are. But at the end of this, uh, I think we're going to experience an extremely negative productivity shock with deglobalization, even if a vaccine magically appears. Uh, the deglobalization will be the end. <clears throat> the deglobalization and probably the political, social, political ramifications, uh, which may be good overall for society, but in terms of growth and productivity, they will be lasting negative shocks. And demand may come back. And, and many of the forces that have led to very low inflation may have gone into reverse, either because of deglobalization or uh, workers will strengthen their rights and unions will become stronger, which it becomes possible in a more deglobalized world. It's easier to rebuild uh, union strength when you're not competing with foreign firms. And of course, uh, inflation is a, is a possibility, but the, the market foresees like essentially zero chance of ever having inflation again. And I think that's, uh, it, you know, uh, very wrong. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at MyStephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. The interview you just heard was conducted by Simon Kennedy, and the published version of the transcript in Bloomberg Markets magazine was edited by Stryker Maguire. Special thanks to Jeff Green, Steve Matthews, Mark Schofield, Carmen Reinhart, and Ken Rogoff. Scott Lamman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.